I'm Jessica Harris, and welcome to my welcome table. Gather round this special table. It's scarred with memories, pitted with burned spots from hot skillets, and decorated with moisture rings from frosty glasses of lemonade, beer bottles, bourbon and ginger ale, and untold goblets of red wine. This table will be our flying carpet as we travel around the world. I'll share some of my secret spots. We'll meet new friends and reconnect with old ones. Sometimes, the table will be covered with fine porthot linen and my mother's bone china, and we'll sup on caviar and champagne. Other times, we'll cover it with yesterday's news and hanker down for a crawfish boil or a lobster supper. Whatever the meal, by the end of our time together, we'll have shared some special friends, sacred spots, and the food, drink, and music that connects them. So come, join me at my welcome table. Hi, my name's Mitzi Pratt, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. I'm Patrick Dunn, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. My name is John Barkley, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. My name is Anne McBride, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. I'm Betty Fussell, and I, too, am sitting at the welcome table. Compass Point, 12.2 degrees south, 77.3 degrees west, Lima, Peru. Cuando despiertan mis ojos y veo que sigo viviendo contigo, Peru. Emocionado. Doy gracias al cielo por darme la vida contigo, Perú. An invitation to give a February lecture in Peru came as an unexpected email in November a few years back. It was an email from a colleague with whom I'd long lost touch, and I was very surprised to hear from her. I rapidly sent off my curriculum vitae and began to rack my brain wondering why anyone would invite me to lecture in Peru in February. I received a formal invitation from the director of the institute and from Doris Arguto, the director of the library of IFNA, the Instituto Cultural Peruana Norteamericana, the Peruvian North American Cultural Institute. The invitation was to visit Lima, Peru for a few days at the end of February. In the ensuing emails, it materialized that I would give two lectures, one at the Institute and a second one at the Instituto Superior de Alta Cocina de Galia, the country's preeminent culinary academy. In the growing email correspondence, I learned that the lectures were to be in honor of Black History Month. Black History Month in Peru? This I had to see. about Peru, Machu Picchu and its formidable ruins, the Inca civilization and the mummies discovered at Sipan. I knew about the gold hoard that is housed in the city's museum and of the moche. I'd heard Simon and Garfunkel's music based on the old tune El Condor Pasa, accompanied by the haunting sounds of Incan flutes. I, like many others, was unaware of the large role played by Africans and their descendants in the culture of Peru 
a country where black history is often underground, if acknowledged at all. Soon, the arrangements were made, and I arrived in Lima on Mardi Gras, fully assuming I would see streets filled with masking, parading folks, but instead found the streets to be clogged with traffic that I would later learn is a part of everyday life in Lima. Parades and masking, it seems, happen only on the weekend in the capital, very much unlike New Orleans. My second surprise was Lima itself, a huge, sprawling city where the suburbs hug the Pacific Ocean, which looked muddy and turbulent, nothing like the Atlantic with which I am more familiar. While preparing for my lectures, which were to be about black American culinary culture, I took time out to read a bit about blacks in Peru. As with many places in South America, enslaved Africans were originally brought to Peru to work the mines and the cane fields. Mines were more inland, and the cane fields were established along the coasts south of Lima. Their descendants are still in those areas of the country today, and some of them are still working in the same cane fields. In 2009, the Peruvian government issued a historic apology. It said, We extend a historical apology to the Afro-Peruvian people for the abuse, exclusion, and discrimination perpetuated against them since the colonial era until the present. Interesting. The apology doesn't even mention enslavement. Africans in Peru arrived early, and there are records that indicate that in 1547, a few decades after conquest, there were seven known blacks, probably more, selling food and other goods in the main plaza of Lima for their master's benefit. The more I read, the more I became intrigued by the similarities that connected Peru to the world of the African diaspora that I have long studied. Perhaps the most startling one is that the word Creole that is used throughout the African diaspora may have originated with the Africans enslaved in Peru. In 1989, Spanish etymologist Corominas and Pascual indicated that while the Portuguese origin of the word Creole is undisputed, it may have ultimately been African in origin, and they cite Garcia Lasso Elinca, who wrote in Peru in 1602. This is what he said. It's a name that the Negroes invented. It means among Negroes born in the Indies. They invented it to distinguish those born in Guinea, as Africa was called then, from those born in America because they consider themselves, those born in Guinea, more honorable or of better status than their children because they are born in the fatherland while their children are born abroad, and the parents are offended to be called criollos. Contestan los de Tumán, contestan los de Tumán, al andurundur. 
There are about two million Afro-Peruvians, and the cultural connection of Peru to the Creole world was very much in evidence during my brief stay. It was evident in the casual lifestyle and the affectionate way that even strangers greet new acquaintances with two kisses, one on each cheek. Not air kisses, real kisses. It was visible in the architecture, in that sort of southern, Spanish, moresque style that turns a blind eye to the street, while behind high walls lurk patios and courtyards filled with fountains and glorious flowers. It was witnessed in the casual adherence to the clock, the ticking clock. Oh, throughout the world of the African diaspora, appointments routinely begin a bit later than planned, and yet somehow they are always right on time. It's there in the gliding elegance of dances like the marinera and the Creole waltz that I witnessed at Don Potofiro, one of the small dance clubs called Peñas. The marinera is a swooping, gliding dance of courtship. In 1893, a traditional dance of long standing was named marinera, renamed marinera, in homage to a marine hero. Today, the marinera is considered Peru's national dance with dance festivals held around the country, and three distinct versions of it exist from the coast, the north, and the highlands. Peru's African face is also there in other forms of Afro-Peruvian music that often boast haunting underlays of minor chords or are punctuated with intricate percussion rhythms, sometimes played on a resounding box, almost like a beatbox, known as a cajon. At the Culinary Institute when I visited, students played a piece for me that they'd written, using nothing more than cooking implements, pots, pans, graters, and more. It was a joyously cacophonous piece, but rhythmic and haunting. Afro-Peruvian culture is also celebrated in the music of Grupo Gisa, an Afro-performing group that is a family of musicians ranging in age from gray-bearded venerable to a youthful drummer with more attitude and style than would have seemed possible for one aged about eight. And there's a rich tradition of Afro-Peruvian vocal music as well, with singers like Eva Ion, Lucha Reyes, Cabuca Grande, and Arturo Cuero, known as Zambo. But the high priestess of Afro-Peruvian music is the two-time Grammy Award winner Susana Baca, who became Peru's Minister of Culture in 2011. Afro-Peruvian life seems everywhere if you really just look a little beyond the surface. I even found it in the country's religious life as Lima is home and final resting spot of a 16th century lay brother of the Dominican order 
who in 1962 became the world's first Creole saint. Saint Martin de Porres worked, prayed, and died in a Lima convent. The convent in which he lived can be visited today, as can the convent where Saint Rosa de Lima lived, and Lima's magnificent cathedral. But I must confess that the gold and ritual beauty of these cathedrals left me wondering why with the first mulatto saint were there no black angels. Pintor nacido en mi tierra con el pincel extranjero Pintor que sigues el rumbo de tantos pintores viejos But I can only worry about that so long because the streets of Lima were amazing and just overflowing with food. Indeed, perhaps the most startling Creole connection in Peru for me was food. Afro-Peruvian food. I didn't know that Peru is the most biodiverse country, certainly one of the most biodiverse countries in the world, with marketplaces that boast staggering arrays of fish and an abundance of fruit and vegetables. A visit to one of the local markets revealed everything from the apples and pears of temperate climates to passion fruit and mangoes from the tropics. The meat aisles displayed an array of pork products. I have a picture of a pork head dangling smilingly over the tripe. And um, they silently testified to a Peruvian love of innards like that trife, including beef heart for anticuchos, which are skewered barbecued tidbits, and the tripe that sold in three different types, pocket tripe, blanket tripe, and book tripe. Incan traditions were even evident with the array of potatoes that were sold, both whole and, in something that was new to me, pre-Julian and ready to cook, and in an abundance and diverse varieties of corn. There were premixed sauces and all manner of condiments that could fancy up homemade dishes. Then there were the qui, guinea pigs, that are a delicacy to some. They sit in their cages, pink noses quivering, as though they know their future lies in the oven, not on a rotating wheel in a cage. The food that was sold in the streets by African slaves in the 16th century continued to be sold in the ensuing centuries. And by the 19th century, street vendors of all hues were selling dishes that form a culinary link in the African diaspora. Some sold fritters called picarones, prepared from flour, eggs, and cinnamon that were drizzled with a sugar syrup made from cane and each vendor's special ingredients and spices. Others sold sweetbreads or cakes or even tamales. Tamales! Tamales! El tamalero llegó! El tamalero llegó! El tamalero suave! Casera ricos tamales! 
Still others sold fresh melons and even more sold that typically Peruvian drink known as chicha morada, prepared from the kernels of dark maroon corn. Deep purple chicha can be a benign cooling beverage or take on prodigious alcoholic qualities if allowed to ferment. Images of 19th century street vendors, sketched by artist Manuel Atenasio Fuentes, are Peruvian cousins to those done in Brazil by Jean-Baptiste Debré and Rugendas, and those done in New Orleans by Lafcadio Hearn or Fremont. They all present vendors of African descent who rule the sidewalks of the town. The dishes they depict are related as well. Fritters like bunuelos and picarones, miracalas and beignets, arroz con leche is rice pudding, or arroz zambito is a brown rice pudding, and melcocha is a peanut patty that is similar to a praline. I met a Peruvian old stove, that wonderful Italian term for a woman who embodies the wisdom of the particular kitchen. In this case, it was the Peruvian Afro-Creole kitchen. Teresa Izquierdo, whose restaurant is jokingly named El Rincón Que No Conoces, the spot you don't know, was Peru's most renowned black cook. Daughter of a cook, she grew up in the kitchen and found her way back to it. As I have often done with my culinary elders around the world, I sat at a side table in her restaurant, and we shared family recipes for dishes like pig's feet and pork crackling, cackling with each other as we laughed at how we'd both grown up eating lard and bacon fat. She spoke with me about taku-taku, rice and beans Peruvian style, and I told her about Hoppin' John and red beans and rice. Our time together was, not surprisingly, too short, but it cemented my thoughts about the cultural and culinary relationships of all those who live in areas where Africans are scattered. We didn't really get to exchange recipes other than briefly, but I dreamed of cooking with her, or of inviting her to share her recipes with culinary sisters from elsewhere in the diaspora. When she died in 2011, it was an incomparable culinary loss that is the Peruvian equivalent of the passing of Edna Lewis or of Jamaica's Norma Shirley. I have therefore only memories of her cooking as I sampled it at her restaurant and of how she honored me by showing up at the lecture I gave, leaving a hospital bed and arriving, Peruvian time, a tiny bit late, to astound me with her generosity of spirit. I hope that her restaurant continues under the direction of her daughters, both her physical daughters and her spiritual ones, who are like her, inheritors of Afro-Peru's deep culinary culture. Junto limón, pisco y goma. ¡Goma! A brindar, dice Lucar. Azúcar. Un poco de hielo muela. Con canela. Todo pisco sour vuela. 
con su clara bien batida para una copa servida toma azúcar con canela no thought of Peru would be complete without a sip or two of the country's national beverage, pisco. A colorless liquor made from grapes, it has the kick of a country mule. It's Peruvian aguardiente and is firewater indeed. But it smooths into something wonderful when mixed into a pisco sour, the national cocktail. It is the national drink and it is so popular that the recipe has even been transformed into a song. Too soon, it was time to leave Peru, but I had learned how much more I needed to learn. On the day I left, my new friends of all hues gathered together, and we celebrated with a traditional Peruvian dish with a Creole twist, ceviche, at a local cevicheria. It was served with the raw fish as usual, but the Japanese Peruvian owner of the place had cut the fish in strips as opposed to the usual chunks in the manner of Osaka-style sushi. The ceviche was followed by a crispy fried fish that would have been right at home in a small restaurant near Treishville Market in Abidjan, Ivory Coast, or on one of those side streets in Benin's capital, Cotonou. If it had been catfish, I could have closed my eyes and been transported to any southern fish fry in the United States. But it was neither. It was called chito, a crisply done, deep-fried fish topped with a slaw of thinly sliced raw onion mixed with searingly hot chili and served with chunks of boiled corn. Washed down with beer and accompanied by good conversation, the meal reminded of many consumed on excursions past. But then, then it was time to pack up impedimentia and souvenirs, books and spices and memories and more, and head to the airport. On the flight back to the U.S., I kept repeating a saying that I had learned that expressed the deep vein of African culture that runs through the country. El que no tiene de Inca, tiene de Mandinka. It roughly means those who don't inherit from the Inca inherit from Africa. The saying connected me to Peru and placed Peru firmly in my cultural and culinary curve. Now when asked about Peru, I simply say, Peru. Who knew? And until next time. Must kill it good and greasy when I'm gone, gone, gone. Must kill it good and greasy when I'm gone.